Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Thank you so much for joining us on Global IQ Minute. Very happy to be with you. Thank Congratulations you. on your book, Every Day is Extra. Thank you. It's doing well, and I hope people will read it because it's not a Secretary of State's policy tome, it's really a journey, and a journey of a lifetime with a lot of anecdotes, a lot of stories about the Senate and running for president and all these things. So I think it's actually turned out to be uh, interesting, I hope. We have a number of students who listen to our podcast, and you'll be visiting with them shortly at your program. Tell us about how your political career began, because you were a volunteer. I was a volunteer for a really very short time volunteer for President Kennedy's race in 1960 when I was at high school. And I wound up speaking in a high school auditorium the day of the election representing Kennedy against the then president of our class who represented Nixon. And uh, Nixon overwhelmingly, the school was Republican, you know, so we lost that day. But that was my beginning entry and then two years later I worked for Senator Ted Kennedy when he was running for the first time in 1962 to take his brother's seat. And from there, I, I just was always interested, though the Vietnam War intervened and made me more of an activist protester than active in electoral politics. One of the things that I was really struck with was that you began to question our policy in Vietnam even before you enlisted. Well, I questioned it, yes, and I gave a speech senior year at university, the, the class oration on graduation day, in which I raised the sort of policy issues. I was thinking about it in policy, strategic terms. I wasn't thinking about it in moral mm -hmm. or the war fighting terms until I got there. You know, I enlisted in 1965. I was in the service in 1966. And it wasn't really until 1968, 69, that we all were questioning a lot more what the strategy was. So my evolution took place largely while I was in the military. And as to remind our audience, you received a silver star and a bronze star, as well as three purple hearts. Was there any one moment or an episode, or was it a combination of factors? It was factors? a combination. It was, it was a cumulative. I mean, I, noticing how the Vietnamese themselves in the military were fighting, noticing the corruption in the country, noticing the civilian population that seemed to not want to side with anybody except safety and, and security but had no passion for the government, certainly, nor for the Viet Cong. But it betrayed the fundamental rationale that we had been told we were there for, which was to save the country from communism and save the domino theory from taking effect in the region and so forth. None of which I think panned out, obviously, in the end, and none of which was real. It was a proxy war to some degree, with China and Russia backing Vietnam and the United States with Australia and Korea and a few countries involved representing the, the West. So what analogy, if any, can we draw now with what's happening in Afghanistan? Because in Afghanistan we're saying we need to be there to combat potential terrorism, keep the bad guys away from the United States, right. and we're in our 17th year. Well, I believe that, first of all, there's a huge distinction between Vietnam and Afghanistan. Vietnam was a mistake from the beginning. Our involvement was predicated on notions that just weren't strategically real. 
and we engaged in the Civil War. In Afghanistan, we went after the people who attacked the United States of America, and it was 100% correct for us to do that, uh, to go after Osama bin Laden, and to prevent ungoverned spaces from threatening the United States. The problem is that Afghanistan then evolved into this broader strategy, partly because the administration diverted its focus and strategic attention to Iraq. And the Iraq war started to consume everybody's energy to the exclusion, frankly, to the detriment of our strategy in Afghanistan. And then, before you knew it, we were involved in a major undertaking to hold up the government there, to sustain the government and to build an army in order to have a long-term strategic outcome, which is very difficult to achieve, and I think people are realizing that now. I think there could be a simpler platform. I think we have to wean ourselves from this very expensive enterprise in Afghanistan now and get the government to be less corrupt, to but undertake... But don't you think if we leave now, the government will just collapse? Yes, I mean, I'm not suggesting leave. I think we, I said wean ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think we have to have a process without a specific date. So you're not saying to the Taliban, hey, just wait it out, et cetera. But a real process of strengthening the capacity of the government to survive on its own while drawing down what we need to protect the platform for counterterrorism. That remains valid. We, we don't want Pakistani-based Taliban or the eastern Afghanistan-based Taliban to be able to take hold again and use it as a place to wreak terror through the region or elsewhere. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you today what your thoughts are about what's happening in Congress and the Senate Judiciary Committee. Well, I think it's tragic. I mean, I, I watched a lot of it and I feel embarrassed for our country. I feel embarrassed for the institution of the Senate. I think that it's been a bad process. I just have to call it what it is. And I think both sides, frankly, bear some responsibility for the way this has played out. And it's very unfortunate for the families of both of the principal individuals involved, for the Kavanaugh family as well as for Dr. Ford's family. And I, I think that really unfortunate. There should have been an investigation. There should have been a bipartisan effort to get at the facts early on. Now, I know this was complicated by Dr. Ford's letter and by the desire to stay, you know, out of the public eye. But on the other hand, I think the chairman and the, and the ranking member owe it to the committee to have a conversation about that. I think the chairman should have known about it earlier. And I think there should have been a way of proceeding forward. But I also think that for the Republicans to be stonewalling an FBI investigation for the nominee himself not to be willing to embrace the idea and clearly avoiding several opportunities to say, of course, let's have a, I'm asking for it because I want to clear my name. Mm -hmm. And if you're not willing to do that and a principal witness, Mark Judge, is not being called in order to find out what really happened and put him under oath, it is not sufficient that he simply communicates through a letter or otherwise, well, I know my recollection isn't great or something. That's not enough here. You owe it to everybody for a lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court of the United States to have the credibility of this job. And that will only come through a proper investigation. And, and even those people who say, well, we were there, but I don't recall this happening, or I wasn't there, she has said they were. Mm -hmm. And you owe it to the process to have a sworn, subject to penalty of perjury, statement in order to investigate this. That hasn't happened here. So the world is going to be left in doubt about this. 
and I think for women all across the country, I used to prosecute, I was one of the chief prosecutor in one of the largest counties in America, and I was the administrative leader of the office. And I started a rape counseling unit. I started a victim witness assistance program because I knew just how difficult it is for people to come forward and for women who feel twice victimized, once by the crime and then again by the system. So here again, the system is doing that. And women all across our country, uh, and I have two daughters, I talked to them mm -hmm. both last night, they are appalled, outraged by what has taken place. And I think women all across our country feel that way. And I think, I don't know what the number of committee members is precisely, but you have a long line of white men all lined up there. And this woman testifying to that and being doubted by them, I just find that, and, and them not even willing to question. They have to find for the optics. They gotta hire a woman to be able to ask a question. What does that say about their capacity to be sensitive and thoughtful about how to approach this. I think it is a damning moment for this, and I'm very well, sad for the Senate. We, the we hosted your good friend a few nights ago, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and she said it's not just how the senators are behaving, it's really the respect for the institution. Correct. She's what right. do we do? Well, what we do is we elect people who will show respect for the institution. I mean, the bottom line is that we are a democracy still. And we're threatened in our democracy. We're threatened because we have too much money in American politics. We're threatened because we have gerrymandering that actually denies Americans a legitimate general election choice in too many parts of the country. We can't agree on what the facts are in basic situations. Our democracy is threatened because it depends on truth. And here you have a situation where we should have been finding that truth, but willfully people are turning away from the effort to do that, to bum rush an appointment to the Supreme Court of the United States. It's disgraceful, I think, and it threatens our democracy. The, what do you do? You take part in an election. We have a course correction election available to us in, what is it, 40 days, 40-something days. That's the best opportunity Americans have to go out and say, I don't like what's happening and I'm gonna change the people who are not living out their responsibility within the Senate. And I think you have people there who are more interested in protecting their chairmanships, their power, the party, and the president than they are willing to protect the Constitution and the institution. We have time for just one more question, and I'd like to ask you on what you think the risks are now that the president has withdrawn from the JCPOA, the Iran deal that you work so hard. Well, the risks are that, I mean, first of all, the president has isolated the United States and himself from our strongest allies. We were always cognizant that Iran is a problem. We never took away the sanctions on missiles. We never took away the sanctions on human rights, on transfer of weapons to Yemen. We always understood these are problems. But we believed it was better to deal with those problems with an Iran that doesn't have a nuclear weapon. Rather than pull out of the deal, lose the support of the Chinese, Russians, Germans, French, and British, and applying pressure on a red. So we're going it alone now. And to the great anger and frustration of our European friends who believe the United States is strong-arming them into who they can do business with and how they have to behave in the marketplace. This has long-term impact on those relationships. And I think what the president has done is actually strengthen the hardliners in Iran 
because there's now nationalism that is much stronger in Iran, uniting the country in opposition to what they feel is an unfair effort by the United States that isn't keeping the agreement. So we've broken the agreement, Iran has not, that liberates Iran to do other things, and we will not have the support of our best allies at the UN Security Council if all of a sudden something explodes and they, we go to them and say, well, you've got to be with us, they'll say, to hell with you. You guys broke this. It's your deal. Pottery barn rule. You break it, you fix it. And it gives China an opportunity it. to fill the vacuum. Well, China is filling a huge vacuum on a global basis. That's worth a longer conversation. But they've got a trillion dollar a year expenditure on 70 countries as they build their one belt, one road. And they're building laboratories and research centers in all those countries. They're building railroads that go to Europe. They have a building ports in the Indian Ocean and in South China. I mean, this is amazing what China's doing. And we're taking ourselves out of that game completely and totally. And the president's speech at the United Nations the other day, which the world laughed at the United States and our president, the United States is going away from the traditional values-based engagement that we've had in the world. It's a very dangerous moment for our country as a result of that. I want to encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of Every Day is Extra. It really is a remarkable book because it's your autobiography, but I love the way that you gave such detail when you were talking about you know, your negotiations with Iran, the challenges in Syria, and particularly the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And I have to say that your chapter on Vietnam was one of the most compelling descriptions of a soldier's uh, courage that I've ever read. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.